0: Is this everyone's peak? I don't know, man. I, re- I rewatched Scooby Doo recently, and Matthew Lillard was born <laughs> to be shaggy.
1: Hi, and welcome to episode So Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on So Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. For October, we've been talking about some of our favorite horror comedies like *Family with Paradise, How Sue, The Burbs, and Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. We've talked about the tropes of the genre and how these films balance the tones of horror and comedy. Now, for our final episode of the month, we're tackling a director that has is not usually considered a horror comedy director. Many people would call him just a straight horror director. And that would be true. But a good chunk of his work does combine horrific moments with a sly sense of dark humor or sometimes a a big sense of of humor in general and that director is Wes Craven also known as the maestro of horror and Craven is one of those rare genre directors that has helped define and redefine uh, a specific genre several times throughout his career but before we dive into the life and filmography of Wes Craven Thomas What are some of the genre tropes and techniques we've talked about regarding the genre uh, this month?
0: We've talked about references, referencing, you know, previous films within the horror genre, within even just kind of the horror subgenre that you're working within. Um, That can be to the point of parody, like we talked about with Tucker and Dale uh, last week. That can also be just kind of literary references or homages, kind of like we discussed how Phantom of the Paradise made all these homages to almost any gothic literature every gothic literature piece there is pretty much um and and we talked about how that the the horror genre is, is a specific genre that's able to balance homage and reference in a way that is both serious and comedic you can you can make references there's a lot of horror films that reference previous horror films within in a non-comedic way um but then we've also discussed uh, kind of upping the ante as far as the comedic value you know if you shoot something a little bit crazier if you up the gore factor it's it's very easy to to blur the yeah. lines between horror and comedy and that is one one good way to do it um, and something we've hit upon again and again is the idea that the reason that comedy and horror are so closely knit is because the process of of telling a joke and creating a scare is is very similar you've got your setup Um, you've got your suspense and then you've got the punchline or the scare and they the structure is very similar and so it's very easy to see even in serious horror movies there's almost always like a a funny a funny scare at some point you know um
1: yeah a lot of times
0: you'll see a big trope is like before the real scares start you'll have a scare where someone's just messing around you know one of the boys is like scaring one of the girls as they're exploring a, a haunted house Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting genre and and we've, we've seen it throughout this month in that it's very easy to make a horror comedy. It's very easy to woe, to weave horror elements into your comedy. It's very easy to weave comedy elements into your horror because they're so closely tied together in so many ways.
1: Yeah. And, and all, all that is true with how, like uh it's it's the it's horror and comedy are the two genres that really elicit a response from Mm -hmm. an audience either laughing or or being terrified and they also with, with this genre is there's a lot of exaggeration of style which will pop up even the music or the cinematography and which is something that we'll talk about today with Wes Craven but Craven specifically in terms of the the references or the the tropes that are i mean a big thing about the genre is subverting the tropes that are set up within it at least we talked about that with tucker and dale and a little bit about the burbs as well but th- that's gonna be a major part of this episode specifically with craven's work in the scream franchise so yeah what i want to talk about first is just like when you think of west craven what do you think of
0: I think, I think of scream. Um, I also, I do think of the nightmare on Elm street series, uh, specifically new nightmare, just because he's so present within, he he is a character within new nightmare. And so that's, that's kind of like how, that's how I like to picture like my, I feel like, uh, Ricky Bobby, when they're talking about how they picture Jesus, my, my West Craven, (laughs) my West Craven is the new nightmare. West Craven. Who's like very, so friendly and nice. And just like very concerned about Heather and just like like I don't I don't like doing this I just I just have to it's the it's his burden to have to uh, yeah to have to put his his horror stories out into the world
1: yeah uh, I mean and that is kind of a reality like that's the thing is that I, I've I've heard when we're doing my research for Craven I've heard many nice things about him like it's it's actually interesting when diving into him how. Different his life was compared to the movies he made, and yeah, Craven made Craven's first film was in 1972, and his final film was in 2011. So he worked for 39 years, and he specifically worked within the horror genre and kind of the subgenres within that kind of umbrella. And so, yeah, I mean, when I was like re- when I was thinking about him, I there are not many directors that match up with craven i feel like in terms of horror outside of maybe john carpenter mm. yeah like those are the two that i think i, I think when looking at like carpenter had they have very similar careers in terms of like the decades they worked or, or in carpenter's cases worked um but carpenter i think had a a, a shorter like I, his peaks were higher than craven mm in the 80s and 70s but didn't go as long if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, well
0: and I I think and we'll we'll talk about this when we get to to Craven in the 80s, but I think Spielberg and kind of the the Steven Spielberg model lured a lot of people away from horror in the 80s. Um, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff Spielberg was producing which was like family horror got people like yeah. uh Joe Dante, Toby Hooper, a little bit more mainstream. And I don't want to say Wes Craven's not mainstream, but even, even Carpenter in the eighties kind of went outside of horror and, and Craven Craven yeah. did once or twice, but, but always came back to horror period. And, and I, I don't think anybody yeah. else, you can really pinpoint a, a successful horror director who just kind of stuck with the genre, no matter what.
1: Yeah. With, with that also too, I heard Craven's or I read, uh, And the book that I got a lot of my research from called The Man and His Nightmares, Wes Craven by John Woolley, Craven said like he never felt a part of like the club where it was the directors like, say, Brian De Palma and people like that who went from horror movies and then got to do big studio like scarf, like big budget films like Craven felt like he was pigeonholed as a low budget horror director for a while I think that changed as he realized you know what I'm just going to accept this and like I've been able to make movies that I want to make and one thing that Craven does when you really analyze his work is that he tries to say stuff in a lot of his horror movies mm-hmm. it's it might it might not be on the surface you might have to dig down a little bit deeper with it but like when you look at Nightmare on Elm Street for example and compare it to the even the great ones of like kind of these mindless slasher movies. Freddy Krueger is a very like, uh, intelligent being Mm -hmm. like it's, he's not just going from place to place, killing people. I mean, he is, but it's like, there is a, a weird charisma to the character of Freddy Krueger and an intelligence. That's not always, not always shown in the other Mm -hmm. films. And I think that's because of Craven's direction and writing but let's dive in Before we get getting to movie by movie let's dive into his early beginnings so wes craven was born wesley earl craven on august 2nd 1939 cleveland ohio to caroline and paul craven the and he was the youngest of their three children paul was worked as a factory worker and caroline was a secretary when wes was three years old his father walked out on the family uh and a year later his father paul would suffer a heart attack and die Wes said in an interview in New York Times, by my fifth birthday, I had been exposed to a lot of anger and to death. It's never quite left me, the perception that under the surface, there's this potential for violence and chaos and things that are not accounted for by rational thought, which is kind of a big thing that appears in a lot of his mm-hmm. movies uh, throughout his career. And so after his father died, Craven was raised by his mother, Caroline. And so, he he grew up in an incredibly religious household. Hmm. During his childhood, his family attended very far-right fundamentalist Baptist churches. Outside of Disney movies, a few war films, or Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin movies, movies were prohibited in the Craven household. And then junior high school, uh, Craven developed a passion for literature and writing. From Charles Dickens to Dostoevsky, literature brought out the imagination in Craven. And after a brief stint, As an apprentice cable splicer at a telephone company, Craven attended college at Wheaton College, a Christian liberal arts school just outside of Chicago. He would end up graduating with a double major in English and psychology. While at Wheaton, he became interested in dreams, specifically nightmares. He began using his theories that he was taught in psychology classes and applied them to studying his own dreams. At one point, he said he was able to recall his dreams so well, he could write down four to six dreams a night. Wow. Which sounds impossible. <laughs> yeah, I barely remember one. At this time, he also began working at the campus literary magazine, Coden. Uh, however, the magazine was closed for a year after Craven published two short stories by two, from two writers, one about a girl who was having an affair with a married man, and another was about a biracial couple. The day after it was published, the magazine was closed and Craven was given blame by the school. <laughs> I think he's, I think he said like, he goes the next day we're in like assembly or whatever. And the president walks up and goes, the code magazine has been closed because of the, uh, because of Wes Craven. <laughs> 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 that is all. and <laughs> just walked away. Um, after graduating Wheaton, he and his friends attended a master's program at John Hopkins university in Baltimore for writing he said during that time he was either writing or reading. When he graduated from John Hopkins in 1964, he graduated with an MA in philosophy and writing. After that, he became a college professor, teaching at Westminster College in Pennsylvania and then Clarkson College in po- Potsdam. Is it Potsdam, New York? Pots- I apologize. Pots- Potsdam, New York. Uh, he taught literature, writing, drama, art, and freshman English, and he also married his college girlfriend during this time. When he started teaching at Clarkson, this is when he finally began consistently watching films. There was art house theater in town, so he was watching all foreign films that were coming out of Europe, from Truffaut, Fellini, uh, Bunuel, and then Ingmar Bergman. This is when he decided to buy a 16 millimeter film camera. And while a teacher at the college, uh, he helped start a film club with students who saw that he had a film camera. And as his passion for film grew, His department chair confronted him saying either he needs to work on his PhD or get something published. He's like, if you don't do either of those things, I won't bring you back next year. (laughs) And Craven replied, you won't have to. I'll quit at the end of the year. Um, So at age 27, he decided to try and make filmmaking his new career. He moved to New York City, leaving his family back in Potsdam to to work in film. Uh, It didn't work out for him. He ended up moving back. And that's the, the end. The end. Uh and taught at a local high school for a year. And the next summer he's like, I'm gonna try this again. His wife, who was completely supportive of him, and he talked about that in the book, but the constant kind of uncertainty led to them divorcing. And he wasn't having much luck, but at the end of the summer he landed a job as a messenger boy at the age of twenty nine. Wow. Um the guy he was working for was the editor of industrial videos in New York, like for companies uh but within a few years that guy would leave film and become a musician his name was harry chapin the singer of the hit song the cats in the cradle mm-hmm. uh harry taught craven a lot about filmmaking and that's what helped him get work wow. yeah weird apparently he craven was friends with his harry's brother tom and uh, steve
0: oh okay i was a big tom chapin fan as a kid he's a uh, he's a children's children's singer songwriter i was a huge tom chapin
1: fan oh wow well, yeah, he talked about how like I can't remember he was he was Harry was like managing a band, and I think it was I think it might have been his brother Steve was like in another band, and and Harry's like, hey, you, sh- you need an opening act, and then the next week he showed up with like two friends, and they just played some songs, and then Harry Chapin got big, and no one else did.
0: That's hilarious. If you had told me that Tom Chapin and 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 Wes Craven were friends, that would be like on par with when I found <laughs> out that George Romero and Mister Rogers were friends. <laughs>
1: Well, it's weird. Yeah. So, but, but Harry Chapin was a big influence on Craven. Uh, During this time, Craven began, became involved in a film group. And one of the filmmakers in the group became an early collaborator, early collaborator of Craven's. And that's Sean Cunningham, the future director of Friday the 13th. Uh, But that was like almost a decade away. So during this time, these guys were working on uh, quote unquote nudie pictures, which was porn disguised as art. But also, Craven worked on some softcore porn. Allegedly, he was involved in the production of Deep Throat in some way. (laughs) So right during this time, uh, low-budget horror films were beginning to do well. And so Sean Cunningham came to Craven around 1971 and said, Hey, he knows some theater owners in Boston, and they need a film for their their drive-ins and their theaters. as like an opening act for some other movie they have coming out. And Craven and Cunningham agreed to make a horror movie. Now, Cunningham and Craven didn't want to make horror films for a career. Craven did not hate horror films, but it was a genre he was unaware of. <laughs> Before directing the, the movie that would eventually become his debut film, The Last House on the Left, Craven had only seen one horror film. And that was The Night of the Living Dead. That's a, that's a good one to start with. Yeah. And so that's when Last House on the Left comes in. And last in the house on the left, because I, I do think, Craven, as I said earlier, is a director who is define and redefine the horror genre count like at least three times. Yeah, for uh, sure. And and I think last house on the left is the first one because when you look at the films that are coming out, horror films that are coming out in the 1970s, last house on the left predates all of the big movies from uh Halloween to even The Exorcist which comes out I think in 73 uh The Shining is 80 uh but like the slasher movies of the 70s even a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh Last House on the Left kind of sets the groundwork for those kind of indie slasher movies to come up later in the decade Well Last House Last House on the Left is
0: not it's like you know it's it's not what i would necessarily call a a slasher like i it's it's come to be part of that genre but it's it's one that that is honestly i'd call more of a thriller than a horror in the first place like Mm. i like i think because of because craven did it and it's it's come to be regarded more as horror as it goes on but you know it's it's not really uh the the formula is not Really, a horror formula necessarily?
1: I mean, I would call it. I mean, I mean, I would say. Uh, I mean, it's like a straw dogs in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of the comparison piece. But yeah, Last and Last and Left is a very raw and brutal movie. But Craven wanted to, because it was a horror film, but and it had to have violence. Craven wanted to make sure the violence wasn't glorified in any way. So he wanted to make it brutal. And he didn't, he's like, I, I've seen the Westerns and these kind of anti-hero, like, films of the era, pre-this era, that rewarded or glorified violence. And I didn't want to do that. And he wanted to make some statements on, like, Vietnam and kind of the end of the love generation. And um, so for those who don't know about Last House on the Left, Last House on the Left is about these two girls who go into town to go to a concert and these this these kind of group of people uh three guys and a, and a woman they essentially kidnap the two girls and like torture them through the movie mm-hmm. weirdly it, it i i when when watching it i compared it a little bit to once upon a time in hollywood which is apparently a recurring thing on the show this <laughs> month um it what i thought about was like it's craven talking about the end of a specific era the way, like, it's like these guys are like the 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 group on this movie. Uh, the lead villain, by the way, is named Krug, which mm-hmm. will come back up later. These guys feel like surrogates for the Manson family, mm-hmm. in terms of how they're just like picking apart people, and they're kind of they're not like full on hippies, but they kind of represent like the hippie culture of the era. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. They're they're kind of rebels. They're kind of wanderers. They they do whatever they want.
1: Yeah. And so in this film, so in this film, like Craven used that as a way to like make statements of what he was seeing at the time, Um, like Vietnam, because he said, I don't want to glorify death and violence because Vietnam is going on. Um, And it was also Last House on the Left was kind of a reimagining of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. It's a very similar plot line. And that's where he took it from. And he has like weirdly in these early films too, you'll see, I'll bring it up here because I don't know if I'll bring it up in the you know, other ones. Uh, you see kind of the, this Christian imagery, which I think fe- or or Christian references. Like I think one of the characters at one point starts reciting the Lord's Prayer when she thinks she's about to die. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually pops up again. I think in Nightmare on Elm Street they say the Lord's Prayer yeah. at one point. Yeah. yeah. So like that's a recurring thing in his films. Craven did not expect last house on the left to be a big hit. It was made for like, I think $80,000 at the end of it. And it made 3.1 million in 1972, which, and in turn, because of the violence, it caused so much controversy and was pulled, uh, from a lot of screens. Craven said, I think that, uh, people were trying to like rush the projection booth to burn the film (laughs) because of, I don't know how exaggerated that is, but had to, because of how, uh, controversial it was after that that leads to the hills have eyes which craven said craven started working on other scripts outside the horror genre post last house on the left and nothing would come of it because they're like no you're a horror guy you did last house on the left it's so the only job that comes his way is the hills have eyes which by the way is five years later so it's kind of a big gap for like a guy who's making indie movies Mm -hmm. and the hills have eyes is it's a more refined version of last house on the left because it weirdly has a similar structure yeah but it's it's like it's craven's twisted version of grapes of wrath (laughs) is is how i see it um can you tell us what hills have eyes is about yeah
0: hills have eyes is about a family who is traveling they're in a camper right so yes. i've i saw both of them the the original and the remake both in high school so if i combine either of them in, in my my telling <laughs> um but yeah well and we talked about the the hillbilly hillbilly horror genre um yeah. last week but it's it's one of those where they set up camp somewhere and it turns out it's nearby the encampment of some
1: deformed
0: yeah cannibal hillbillies yes who who capture and and torture them yeah
1: basically in this one because it has again we talked about in tugger and dale like the the whole genres of like the oh don't go up there in the beginning of the movie the family's going to california and the dad of the group's like oh i want to go to the, the the old abandoned silver mine mm-hmm. and we got at the gas station's like don't do that stay on the main road just go 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 to california do what you need to do don't go off the road and go see the silver mine and what you find out is that the the gas station owner had, like, abandoned his kid up in the hills. Mm-hmm. And that became one of the people, the, the I think the leader of the group, that became these Kambalistic, this Campbellistic family. Um, and one thing with Craven, at least in his first three movies, and Hills Have Eyes specifically, he uses the landscape as a part of the horror. Mm-hmm. Like, with Last House on the Left, it's the it's the woods. It's being trapped in the woods. And with Hills Have Eyes, it's being trapped in the middle of the desert. And and it brings up a reoccurring theme in Craven's films. It's not as strong as the other ones. But it's this idea of the sins of the parent. And people having to pay for what the parents do. Mm-hmm. The children have to pay for what the parents do. Um... And hills have eyes. It's the kids who have to stand up against the family, the the Campbellistic family, after their father decides to like go off the beaten path and go to the silver mine. And in a way, too, it's like the the kids of or the fam the fa- the Campbellistic family, because one of them is revolting against his father because of what he did previously, and that's gonna pop up more so in Nightmare on Elm Street specifically, yeah. and even Scream to an extent, yeah. even though Craven didn't write that
0: yeah definitely
1: but yeah hills have eyes it's like it kind of, not i don't know if it established the hillbilly genre but it's like it's the one everyone points to weirdly i've heard people like point to that like oh it's the hills have eyes family when they've never seen the movie hills have eyes it's, beca- <laughs> it's weirdly become a pop culture th- like, like it's not a big reference but like i that's one always people always go to in terms of like hillbillies yeah um and establish the whole like hillbillies as the villains type thing And real quick to Tucker and Dale, like they, they do, like I said, they, to re say that is that they do a good job of going against that and kind of making all their hillbillies kind of smart and nice. (laughs) Um, So after Hills Have Eyes, Craven, again, is now cemented himself as a horror director, which is not what he wants to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he starts taking, he takes TV movies, um, one called Imitation to Hell, and sees those as like quick paycheck things. He's like, TV is a paycheck, film is where I'm going to put like creative, my, that's my creative outlet. He does a movie called Deadly Blessing, which is a horror film that kind of deals with some religious angles as well. The one I briefly want to talk about is The Swamp Thing, hmm. which I watched last night for the first time. Technically, like the second superhero adaptation or the first one after Super Superman, basically. Because <laughs> it's based on a DC comic. Yeah. Uh it's Craven's first big studio film. It's a dark superhero adaptation. Um, it was also it's also very different. I was I, I don't know what I was expecting going into it when I watched last night, but like it's definitely Craven tapping into like beauty and the beast elements because there's this like tragic swamp he uses, he he makes swamp thing a very tragic character and creates almost like a tragic romance around it mm-hmm. and it's 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 very campy because it's it's the main guy's a swamp thing <laughs> um and he uh and and so it's some of it works some of it doesn't but I, I i was surprised how heartfelt it was in moments and it might be craven's most heartfelt movie of anything (laughs) i've seen really which is crazy to think because like there's really like great there's like this one moment when he's talking with uh uh the scientist that he met before he became the swamp thing and she asked like does it hurt and he's like only when i laugh and it's this very like moment where it's just it's a very we like nice moment and just like just shows like kind of the the tragic nature of this character, and it continues to do that throughout the movie. Much
2: beauty in the swamp. If you- It must hurt. Does it? I gone crazy isn't this a dream that's what I keep asking myself everything's a dream
1: when you're alone Swamp Thing not a success at the box office Uh, didn't do well at the box office but it was a big hit on home video and resulted in a sequel and I th- at least one tv show and that's not even the, the recent one that just happened a year or so ago but yeah swamp thing's very different for craven and if it had done well at the box office he could have done stuff outside of horror but because of the failure at the box office of swamp thing he was put back into he was pigeonholed as a horror director after that First he does because he hadn't had work in like uh, two like two or three years since the swamp thing. He does a sequel to Hills Have Eyes, which is considered by many his worst movie of all time. Hills still have eyes. It's yeah. Hills Have Eyes part two. Yeah. It it was filmed in 83. It was, it said some people say 84, but it looks like it was released in 1985 to capitalize on the success of Wes Craven's next film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Which came out in 1984. So Thomas, what is A Nightmare on Elm Street* about?
0: You know, I hadn't revisited this movie uh, in a long time, and I had kind of forgotten that it was kind of structured as a mystery. Like it's it's mm-hmm. one of those things that that it's kind of like you kind of, you for, you tend to forget that that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer in in the first Friday the Thirteenth because yep. Jason has become so huge in pop culture. Um, yep. Freddy's not like. Introduce like you don't know who freddy is until like no the last third of the movie really yeah it's just this guy there's this creepy guy with scarring all over his face who is killing kids in their dreams and they don't know like like it's i think it's like the the 30 minute mark that he even like says the name freddy like he says something like freddy's coming or something they're like oh his name's freddy but um yeah it's kind of treated as a mystery like who is this guy so yeah teenage a bunch of teenagers in this town are getting killed in their sleep uh they're pursued by this monster named freddy in their dreams but whatever he does to them in their dreams happens to them in real life so there's all these kind of mysterious murders the adults don't really know what's going on and as Brandon, as you said earlier it comes out that it's the sins of the parents that the uh the children are atoning for freddy krueger was a child predator who was uh let go on a technicality and got got off scot-free and so a group of adults in the town killed him and burned his body and uh he's now somehow gained the ability to haunt dreams and he's now come back for revenge on the children of all of the adults who did that in the first place
1: i i i watched this a few years ago. i feel like i was in college um and i hadn't revisited it and when again, when comparing it to like the the horror films of the era, like Halloween and like Friday the Thirteenth, it's very different. And I it, said it's, it's a very the, your villain is a much more intelligent being. I think the practical effects in this movie are astonishing. Yeah, like, it's like for the time. Like there's certain things. Like there's a big scene when when uh, Nancy played by Heather Langenkamp, but N- Nancy is in a room or in, in I think Tina's room and she's sleeping and Freddie's face comes mm-hmm. like from the wall and it's the hands and just watching that, you're saying, how in the hell do you do they that? Because there's no an entire
0: CG- rubber wall.
1: So you know what it was? It was spandex. Mm-hmm. They put spandex up and just had, cause it was apparently uh, the hot new thing at the time. Um, and just put it up and just had them had the, like a stunt guy go forward with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but real quick, I want to give backstory on how the how the movie came about. Uh, first off, it was based on a bunch of articles that um, Craven had read about these men, these I think it was all, all young men or all men coming over from Southeast Asia. There were immigrants who were having nightmares in their sleep and would wake up dead. Basically, uh, there was one guy. He said he read of a younger person who didn't want to go to sleep. And so he had a coffee pot by his bed that he would pour coffee into when he was feeling tired to keep himself awake. And he kept telling his family, don't put me to sleep. Don't, I don't want to go to sleep. Like, there's someone after me. And then one night, they're watching a movie or something. The kid falls. I think it's a teenager. Teenager falls asleep and they like take him to his room. Next thing you know, they hear screaming and he's dead in bed. Nothing's ever explained. It's just this like kind of wild occurrence, mm-hmm. and f- and Wes is like, I can make a movie out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and he said, there's he says when he was younger, there was this man that scared him that was like kind of the Home Alone type thing of like uh uh the 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 guy who the I'm blanking on saying the guy who shovels snow mm-hmm. and how like it scares him it scares uh McLeod Culkin yeah on the street. Basically, he had that thing of a guy in a trench coat in the hat that freddie wears yeah
0: big old fedora
1: yeah also the name Freddy krueger his childhood bully
0: oh wow yeah yeah i love when 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 they first find it out because you're watching the movie and when they like first find it out um uh heather's like you see this name f krueger Fred yeah. Krueger, and she's like, her mom's like, Fred Krueger's dead, and you're just sitting there like, his name's Freddy. Come on, guys, like we, we yeah. all know that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it all it, it's we it's weird how like like Freddy becomes a superstar after mm-hmm. this movie. That's the thing about the, the rest of the series, outside of I think the Craven's versions of it when he writes Dream Warriors and then when he directs New Nightmare, is that Freddy becomes the star of the franchise.
0: Well, I, it was something very unique to the slasher genre because you had all these like giant scary quiet people you had yeah yeah michael myers you've got jason it's everyone is like quiet and even leatherface leatherface yeah and and freddie is is like always cracking jokes and um and robert england who plays freddie is is fantastic in these movies and he's he's someone who like takes this sick pleasure in, in like screwing with people i mean one of the one of the kind of classic things that he does and that recurs a couple of times throughout the series is that when he calls somebody on the phone and then the phone turns into his mouth and he'll lick yeah. <laughs> like stick his tongue out and like that's not killing them that's purely to mess with them um yeah but that's that's exactly. what freddie likes to do he's he's got a he's got a toy with you before he kills you
1: and and i i and i want to make sure we state this robert england without robert england in this role I'm not sure what happens to this franchise personally because when you look at Nightmare and you look at all the other horror franchises of the time, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had many remakes and sequels since the first one in the 70s and different people have played Leatherface. Halloween has had multiple movies uh, that have... Gone from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. You've had Rob Zombie's Halloween. You now have David Gordon Green's Halloween, and you've had sequels of those. Jason is a guy is a character who's been kind of brought back up a lot, and as occasionally tr- that people try to bring Jason back in some way, and there was one remake of it. But with Freddy, you had that 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street remake. And you had the whole like Freddy versus Jason thing in I think two thousand three, but once New Nightmare happens, there's not much after Nightmare if that makes sense. like. they like it's. Cause I think the big question is, and I think why you don't get a sequel to say the the twenty ten is that like, no matter how good someone is, if it was with Jackie Earl Haley, can you replace Robert Englund? And that's the thing is that Robert Englund became so synonymous with that role and people kind of think oh he was just probably like an unknown actor like a stunt guy he was like a classically trained actor Mm -hmm. (laughs) like shakespearean actor who became freddy krueger um and i think he brings that charisma to it that i don't know if anyone else would have been able to do i know you're there
2: freddy you think you was gonna get away from me i know you too well now freddy
1: uh quick question do you know what studio was first interested in nightmare on elm street no who was it walt disney studios (laughs) they asked Wes craven to tone down the movie and he's like no Wes, there's a little bit too much blood too much blood don't want to do that and they're just like can we make this for kids Disney's
0: hopping on the hopping on the johnny Depp train early
1: yeah so uh so instead because no because again you're looking at craven who hasn't had a big hit uh nightmare on elm street the budget wise is a step down for him uh the company that does it is new line cinema who at this point in time was only a distributor for like old like classic films or foreign films or horror films and they decided to produce a nightmare on elm street because of the success of nightmare on elm street it became a massive it basically made new line cinema mm-hmm. uh and to where it gained the name the house that freddie built so yeah it's like it was I, I i you kind of forget how big of an influence it was At, in 1989 there was a survey that, that showed that 66 percent of boys between ages 10 and 13 could match freddy krueger with his picture but only 33 percent could match abraham lincoln with his picture <laughs> that's how big freddy krueger was uh but real quick so what what stands out to you about this movie and we've said a few things like Sons of the parents and the effects but what else stands out to you about this movie
0: uh, yeah, it's got like I said, it's great storytelling. The way it kind of holds on to who Freddy is and kind of teases it out. It also he borrows something from Hitchcock, which uh, continues to be kind of a Wes Craven thing throughout the rest of his career. Is that uh, the person we're introduced to as the protagonist is is killed off like yeah. ten minutes into it? Yeah, um, Tina. Yeah, which also famously happens in pretty much all the Scream movies um uh, even though yeah. he doesn't write those but as yeah. as we'll see a lot of the scream scripts kind of invoke his his own voice and career but uh yeah. but yeah we're, we're introduced to tina she's the only one who's having the dreams at that point and and she's pretty much kind of given to or you know she's the only one who's admitting to it at this yes. point point. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um she's kind of given to us as this is your protagonist and then and then boom she's dead like the first time she yeah. sees Freddy, you're like, oh, this is just the intro to Freddy. She's going to get out alive. And nope, she's she's dead.
1: Yeah. And because she's not killed in the opening scene, but like she's like, she, it's like around like probably 25 minute mark, maybe 20 mm-hmm. minute mark. Because that because that kind of spurs the rest of the plot because I think, oh, her boyfriend killed killed her. Um, and he's like, no, like no one was there in the room when it happened or so, someone was there in the room. I didn't see his face. When in reality, it's just her in a very horrifying sequence, the very well done sequence of her just like rotating around up to the ceiling and being just rotated around the room, Mm -hmm. which is then brought back up in a new nightmare, uh, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, I just think, I think it was like, what, what was I read in Roger Ebert's review? of dream warriors. Cause he didn't do a review on Nightmare on Elm street. He goes nightmare on Elm street series has a reputation in the movie business as a sort of high rent answer to the Friday the 13th saga. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would agree. I think, I think because of just how, like, because as I said earlier about Craven studying his dreams, he used a lot of the stuff uh, that he had learned when he was a student about dreams and, and kind of the theories of dreams. But also I want to bring that up too, is that that's a big, theme of a lot of his movies where characters are unaware if they're in reality or if they're in a dream world and it creates this i think what someone termed rubber reality and it pops up throughout his entire career i think even in last house on the left a character has a dream and wakes up from it so like dreams are a recurring theme in his films but it really becomes a part of i guess the Craven brand with nightmare on elm street yeah well and i think
0: also and and this might have to do with him having a background and not wanting to do horror but uh, as opposed to a lot of the kind of friday the 13th movies craven always feels like he's interested in in making you really root for and and feel for the protagonist because a lot of these Mm -hmm. movies are just kind of like here's your here's your you know the the killer's victims for this movie you're gonna watch them all die um, whereas, yeah. whereas he's much more invested you know with, with Nancy with Sydney later on in, mm-hmm. in really making sure you're invested and rooting for that person to make it out alive
2: see I told you you'd be feeling better all day long I've been seeing that guy's weird face and hearing those fingernails fingernails that's amazing you saying that that made me remember the dream I had last night What'd you dream? I dreamed about a guy in a dirty red and green sweater. Well, what about the fingernails? Oh, he scraped his fingernails along things. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something, something he'd made himself. But They made a horrible sound. It's like, scream. Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep I did.
1: That's impossible. So real quick before we move on to the next movies. Uh, Craven, because he was in need of money, sold the character for $500,000 New Line Cinema. So he missed out on a lot of money opportunities Mm -hmm. in terms of merchandise and sequels. Um, He was able to get 10% of the profits because of his WGA contract, but that was it. So he didn't have control of the character, which will come back into play later on with New Nightmare. Um, so after Nightmare on Elm Street, you would think, man, he's got a big hit. He's got, he's gonna have a bunch of big hits coming. No, that's not what happens with Wes Craven. After redefining the genre a second time, he ends up doing a couple of TV movies again. Again, does one called Chiller in 1985 and one for Disney called Case Busters in 1986 about these two two, the, the two grandkids of, uh, of a retired cop, now a detective, Pat Hingle, who played Commissioner Gordon, the original Batman uh, Burton series. Uh, and yeah, it's a 47, 50 minute for TV movie about these two kids doing a, like solving a mystery. <laughs> and it was it was Craven's way of trying to show, hey, I can do more than horror. And people were like, that's good. Just stick to doing horror. <laughs> uh, his next his next movie originally titled friend later became deadly friend it was supposed to be about like a robot and the kid who makes him uh mm-hmm. and kind of a like trying to be like an et-esque story if that makes sense and i think they 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 watched i like, don't oh, know no, we got to have more scares than this you're west craven let's add more scares and let's retitle this deadly friend instead so what was be- to be a family film of some kind with some dark edges to it, uh, ends up just being a straight horror sci-fi film, which Craven was upset by. He rewrites real quick, or he does a write, or he does a script for Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors, which I was very surprised by, by the way, because <laughs> I always thought, outside of New Nightmare, I always thought the sequels of Nightmare on Elm Street were just like forgettable or bad. Uh, I actually really like Dream Warriors. Yeah, Dream Warriors. Like, I is think fun. it's a. Gr- I think it's. I think it's a great premise. It's a natural premise. I think it's, you're getting a mix of like the charismatic Freddie of the, of the one liners, but also the, the lineage of the Craven franchise by bringing back Nancy as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just like, when watching, I think, I think there's some things that are a little rough. Cause I, yeah, take into account too. Like there were three other, like two or three other writers on the movie, one of them being Frank Darabont. So, it's not fully Craven's vision, and they, ch- I think they changed a good bit from what I heard, but there is West Craven DNA in this movie, especially compared to the other sequels in Nightmare on Elm Street. So, after Nightmare, I'm going to do a quick run through these two movies because I want to talk about them. Uh, he has a movie called The Serpent and the Rainbow, starring Bill Pullman, who is a Harvard anthropologist who was sent to Haiti. To retrieve a powder that people have said can bring humans back from the dead. Um, essentially, this drug creates walking zombies. Basically, they're it's a, again a kind of a mystery of there are people who were dead before and three years later reappear in like a zombified state. And Bill Pullman gets sent to Haiti. I think it's one of the first movies to, if not the first movie to ever be shot in Haiti. Um, and Bill Pullman is trying to discover, trying to find this drug, and bring it over to the U.S. to like so that his company can monetize it to, to to start making money off of it. It's an underrated Craven movie. Like there are some really horrific, like or terrifying scenes, which I hear were added because of a, a bad test screening. we like, Hey, it's a Wes crime. movie. it wants to be more horror. Again, a reoccurring theme throughout his entire <laughs> career. Anytime he tries to make something serious, like, no, 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 no. Give us some horror stuff, Wes. And it's one of his biggest movies in terms of like shooting on a large canvas. Like there's these beautiful shots of like in Haiti of like a, um, like ceremony, but it's all shot with like, um, in a cemetery, it's shot in like a, with, a with like uh torches mm. and it's just beautiful. And I think I read that the original, the author of the book is actually s- inspired by a true story. The author of the book wanted Peter Weir to direct it. And when watching this, it would make total sense because of how big it is in scope. Mm. And so it's very different for Craven. And I think he does a really good job at it, but it kind of gets forgotten because it's, it's, it's a little, it has a little bit of horror in it because it's dealing with like voodoo and stuff. But it's not fully that. But again, in this movie too, Bill Pullman's character, after he kind of takes the drug at one point, it's this idea of like he doesn't know if he's in reality or if he's in a dream world. Mm-hmm. So he begins having nightmares, and he keeps thinking he's in the real and in, in, in his real world, but he's in like a whole like. There's one scene that I think is just incredible where he gets like trapped in it. Basically, gets put in a casket and it begins to like overflow with blood. It's just like horrifying
2: a totally new anesthetic that could revolutionize medicine. Now, what if this zombie drug could be discovered? Forty to 50,000 lives a year are lost on the operating table, and not because of surgery, but because of anesthetic shock. Forty to 50,000 lives a year could be saved in the U.S. alone, Dr. Allen. More worldwide, if properly marketed. It could be something more complicated than drugs. It could be the proof, perhaps, of the soul. Come on, Sconi. Where's the location of the soul? Under the hood next to the battery? No. The soul begins and ends with the brain. This drug, this is something totally new. We don't have anything that can put somebody in then back out of death.
1: After Serpent in the Rainbow, he does a movie called Shocker, which he basically wanted to say, Hey, I want to recreate the success of Nightmare on Elm Street, but this time I'm gonna own the rights and I'm gonna help I think it was universal make money so they can start their own franchise and and he again he basically uses it it's a it's a uh stars peter berg a very young peter berg uh as his football player in college who uh gets tied up with the serial killer horace pinker and horace pinker after he gets uh electrocuted he like it's a he he it's very campy and very over the top but he basically after he gets electrocuted, he still stays alive, but he can now travel through the TV. Uh, But it's like, it's Craven trying to make statements on the effect of television at the time, at the end of the eighties on our culture and our, our, like our psyche. But again, he also uses this rubber reality of Peter Berg, again, very similar to uh, uh, Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street is that kind of the big thing is he realized, Oh, I got to go into my dreams, go to sleep. That's when I can see what's, what Horace is going to do. And let me bring him out of the dream into the reality.
2: Mm.
1: And I'm just like, when I'm watching, I'm like, there's so many similarities between nightmare on Elm street in this movie. It's just not fully clicking. And I think because you don't have someone like Robert England in the lead role. Um, So with all that, he has a book. Like I said, after nightmare on Elm street, a bunch of misfires, a couple underrated movies. And then we move into the 1990s, which I think is arguably Craven's best decade. And he starts it off with 1991's "The People Under the Stairs." Now, Thomas, you never seen this movie before?
0: I not no. This was my first time watching it. I had, I had seen the trailer um, at the New Art because they I remember when they showed it at the New Art. Yeah. They showed the trailer a few yeah. times. Um, it's wild. Yeah, what's it about? Uh, so it's about this a young boy, um, his name is Fool, that's what his, his sister calls him, um, mm-hmm. and he lives in the projects in um, Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. he, they live in like a, some slum apartments, they're about to get evicted, his mom's sick, and his neighbor, who's played by Ving Rames, tells him, hey, we should go rob your landlord, because he's the one who's evicting you, and I hear he's got a bunch of yeah. gold. So the two of them go to break into, uh, along with Vingram's partner, go to break into this house and just, it's, it, you know, it's just this this uh, couple who lives there. They seem to be kind of, you know, really religious and, and pretty vanilla. Yeah. And so they go to break in and steal the gold and start to realize that the place is more than it seems as they get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It turns out that the couple who lives there is like a really twisted brother-sister pair who. Um, who like to make believe that they're married with each other and uh, have been kidnapping kids in an effort to raise like the perfect Christian child. And anytime one of the kids rebels against them or doesn't, or isn't perfect, they get locked in the basement. So there's now a brood of, of uh, deformed basement cannibals <laughs> who are trapped in the basement. And so fool gets trapped in this house, which is a stronghold, with these weird bdsm religious murderer people
1: (laughs) yeah and and see the idea to like they're trying to find the perfect child but most of the trying to trying to create the perfect family Mm -hmm. is the idea is that you're coming out of this like reagan america uh high on capitalism um and Craven, I think, is trying to make a statement of like the 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 downside of that i that American dream at that point, mm-hmm. and, and and so in some case like the facade of it, and so yeah, like they 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 found the, in the movie they they have found the right girl that she's perfect. Now we have to find the right boy, but these boys are all rebellious. Like, I mean, this one talks too much. We have to cut out his tongue and throw him down in the basement. And like, there's a lot of these like things happening. And it's them trying to create the perfect American family, the perfect American image, and the whole bit. Like, yeah, it's like they're trying. They're basically selling uh, the house that full, the, the apartment that full lives in. Like, they're gonna sell for a bunch of money, and it's the idea of accumulating all this money. But it's just sitting in the house, and they're doing nothing with it except buying more stuff, and usually putting people uh, there in low-income areas out of how out of their house that can sell like. Uh, uh, sell it or sell it to a condo developer or like a strip mall developer mm-hmm. which i feel again highly relevant still and i, I think uh brandon quincy adams or brandon a- brandon adams thing is why he's building this movie brand quentin adams great child actor performance in this movie yeah
0: he's a lot of fun he cares i mean he carries the movie and this is one of those that you like i said with Wes, you're you're on the edge of your seat the whole time because you yeah. don't want anything bad to happen to fool and um bad things are happening to a lot of the people around him but uh but you're really invested in this one because because of his performance and because of the way west presents his characters you you at any time he's in danger you're really rooting for him and i I texted you it's it's um it's got this energy to it that feels like like i was saying earlier the kind of spielberg blockbuster horror family horror joe dante kind of stuff he it's got a very like childish energy to it but then it's also yeah. dark and i mean it definitely are yeah. <laughs> and, and so yeah. it's a really it it feels like an r-rated goonies almost um
1: yeah in a way yeah
0: yeah but it's a lot of fun i really enjoyed it
1: i think another thing too real quick i think we kind of mentioned this about nancy and, and nightmare but and we'll, we'll continue in the scream is that fool is a very intelligent like lead character
0: mm-hmm.
1: like he's always like I'm not saying he's not one step ahead of every character, but like, he's always thinking he's always like making smart decisions as a way to get away. He's, he's innocent, Uh,
0: but he's intuitive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is something he, he brings up a lot as someone who is, who is very, who is innocent and good, like would not ever think of killing someone. Yeah. But is able to think of a plan to defend himself in, yeah. in, a, in a second if if needed and is able to defend himself and can resort to violence if pushed to that point exactly it's just a lot of fun and like you know as yeah. as he's i think he's starting i think the reason we enjoy the 90s so much is that as he begins to redefine the genre again this is when craven's getting very meta with it he fully recognizes yeah. what has been happening within the genre for the past 20 years And he is, is commenting on it now kind of constantly. And so that's what this one, this one, especially, I think that's how he's able to blend that kind of childish energy with his, you know, the, the real dark kind of scary stuff Mm -hmm. is because he's, he knows those lines. He knows which lines to cross and how to weave it kind of in and out. And that's why he's also able to present these two mother and father, as like frightening but also as, as comedic as they are because there there's always yeah. something kind of wacky and offbeat to them but also like terrifying in their performances and in, in the way they're written and styled and everything
2: he doesn't talk much does he his tongue's cut out oh man mommy caught him trying to call for help one day and Daddy had to teach him to
0: speak no evil,
2: right? Your father's one sick mother, you know that. Actually, your mother's one sick mother too. Shh. You're speaking evil. They'd kill you if they heard a word you just said. Roach. Roach is my friend. A roach. Well, I'm Point Dexter. Everybody calls me fool.
1: So after People on the Stairs, we moved to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is a movie that I know Thomas. I feel like loves is loves the right word? Yeah.
0: This is one of my favorites.
1: Love yeah, this movie. I, I know Thomas we I sent him a video, I think it was it was it was honest trailers to the video about Scream. Yeah. And, and they, they,
0: <laughs> they they trash New Nightmare. They were like, Wes Craven finally makes a good meta movie. I was like, whoa. <laughs> what <laughs> What did New Hold Nightmare ever now. do to you?
1: I, my big question is, is Wes Craven's New Nightmare the most meta movie ever made? Oh, is 100%. Like what I wonder.
0: Like, it's insane. It's up there with probably... It's probably New Nightmare and Adaptation, or probably... The, the... Yeah,
1: probably those two are the most meta. I would agree with that.
0: So, New Nightmare is about Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Dream Warriors. And yep. she is having Nightmare. It's set in, in the 90s. She's having Nightmares about Freddy... And yeah. which I, I always love anytime she lets So she'll like call up Robert England and be like, I'm having nightmares about Freddie. And Robert England's like, you're having nightmares about me. And she's like, no, not you, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> but her, her husband is then killed in a car wreck. But when she goes to identify the body, he's got the Freddy kind of signature slash marks on his chest. So yeah. she starts thinking that something's really wrong. Her young son, Dylan is starting to act kind of strange and he has become obsessed with freddie and he, he sings the song you know the one two yeah. freddie's coming for you he is always talking about Freddy, even though she's never let him watch any of those movies so she becomes convinced that like Freddy is freddie is real somehow and ends up and ends up talking to wes who tells her that he's working on a new nightmare on elm street movie because freddy has been haunting his dreams and you yeah. come
1: to find out that Wes is writing Heather's life. Well, cuz based I think in the previous one which is called Freddy's Dead is the kill off Freddy is what it is. And it's like great, no more Freddy movies and uh they can in reality they came to Wes like, "Hey, do you want to do one more because we like people really like the character." And Wes is like, "Cool, let me just reinvent the entire franchise." Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like he's telling Heather's story. And rea- and he apparently when he decided to write the movie, he interviewed all the actors to get their not just the actors, but like Bob Shea, who's the producer of the film and like one of the heads of New Line at the time. Like, he used like all the real people mm-hmm. that were involved in making it. And he interviewed them like, okay, what, how did it have effect on you? Like, what was your career like after Nightmare? Like, did, like, with England, did Freddie have like, like, what was your relationship with the Freddie character, blah, blah. blah. And, like, I know Heather Langenkamp said, like, after... It wasn't even after Nightmare. It was after she was on a TV show that got canceled. She started having a stalker, is what it was. And they would call up her house and, like, say stuff to her and not say anything. And so Wes kind of takes that and makes that a plot thing mm-hmm. in this movie that, that she starts getting random calls, which you kind of believe is Freddy.
0: Um, yeah, but I love, and, like you said, everyone's involved in it. I love when when... They have her husband's funeral. Like, a lot of the cast from the original Nightmare on Elm Street is there, and they don't even really have, like, speaking roles. But they're they're
1: just kind of there. Yeah, Tina's boyfriend's there. Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp didn't bother to show up. uh... Well, I read Craven was hesitant to ask him because he had gotten so big Mm. that he was afraid Depp would say no. And Depp, they ran to each other after the movie. And Depp's like, oh, no, I totally would have done it. Yeah. Like,.
0: But I do. I love the 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 actor who played her father in in Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street. Yeah, John
1: John Saxon. Yeah is, yeah, is
0: a is a friend of hers in the movie and yeah. and kind of a confidant. And I love his his role in the movie as being the one that's like you, you know you're you're not crazy, even though he was the one in the original who was like you're crazy. <laughs> um, and I and I love my my favorite part in the movie is like when he comes over to help her and he's like she's walking him out the door and, and he says something about oh what is she she says something about john and and yeah. he says um who's john yeah he says why are you calling me john nancy and she's like yeah. why are you calling me nancy john and then she turns around and she's outside her the the house in the movie and yeah. that's when she's like been really sucked into the movie yeah it's it's wild it's just so and i love wes in it himself and this yeah. this role that's like <laughs> I, I am god <laughs> like <laughs> my movies keep the demons away I love there's that that scene when she goes over to his house and he kind of like walks her into his study and he's telling her about Freddie and and the energy yeah. that is Freddie and then it just zooms in on his computer and he's been t- he's already
1: typed up Dude, that whole have conversation the same, that they had again. There's a few movies in the night uh, I will say this one and even I'll say Vampire in Brooklyn that I think are very misunderstood with people. Metal was
0: just tough in the '90s. Um, you know, it's it's really not until recently and and I think Scream has been a huge help in making meta a little bit more mainstream and making it easier yeah. to digest. But still there's, there's a lot of movies metas tough for some people to, to digest. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's like superior to like meta. Some people get it and just think it's annoying, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it had, there, there are still some people who are just like, that no, I don't, I don't want the fourth wall broken at all. Even if it's yeah. you know, in, just in, in a meta subtext.
1: I want to bring this in real quick about how, um, craven why he made this movie well so he felt that everyone after him went off and did their own version of freddy and it changed the character from like the dark kind of creepy character he was in the first one to this comedy like this comedian and craven said again he had a dream where he was at a cocktail party and robert england was there dressed as freddy and he's like he was doing the shtick and i was becoming upset and then i noticed this shadow following england and i wondered what could that presence be? And that became the whole premise of new nightmare and England. Like I said, I love the scene where like England pops out at the, uh, at the talk show and he's like dressed as Fred like, Hey, Hey, I'm coming to get you. And like, everyone's excited and then it just cuts to them later. Of, like England, just like, Oh yeah, I'm just like a rock star mm-hmm. is basically what he's become. Signing as autographs Freddy. And everything, yeah. Signing autographs and like, also this is weird. Kind of like, again, like people who were like, they like, like the thing about it is like, that's like a decade after the movie. Uh, at the original movie um and she's like oh yeah i see robert at these events it's like very much like early like conventions like mm-hmm. scenario of like how i see people that i worked 10 years ago just in random moments of my life but we still have this connection so we're still friends in a way let's like say like, oh i'll walk you out it's like and but yeah it's uh england does, like i said england does a great job of like this the two-parter of playing freddy krueger but also playing a version of himself yeah, playing completely not threatening
0: Robert England who yeah. likes to stay at home and paint.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he said and England has said this is the favorite of his films. And I think Heather Langkamp said something similar. That New Nightmare is their favorite to be a part of. Also, ran, a random tidbit, shot during the Northridge earthquake. And in the movie there's a lot of earthquakes. Yeah. They actually they actually used a lot all the footage you see is just the, like the B, the B-roll of them driving around cuz northridge earthquake earthquake had just i wondered i wondered how they did all
0: that like all those buildings and rubble i was like that's a that's a big spin to have like that bridge in the background that's that's knocked down
1: they basically hey let's go get some footage of this real quick so we can put it in the movie (laughs) just i mean life imitating art in that in that instance
0: maybe hey hey the earthquakes were a sign of freddy coming back they made the movie to stop freddy from coming back Maybe, so maybe it's we, real.
1: We saved it. Yeah, New Nightmare, however, I think was the lowest grossing Nightmare on Elm Street movie when yeah, it
0: came it's, out. I guess like it's tough. It's tough, especially at that point. People really didn't know what to do with meta. Especially meta that's not presented as comedy. Yeah. You know, Mel Brooks is meta, but like it's he, he doesn't yeah. present anything as, as being horror or drama or anything like that.
2: Well, listen, the sob probably read about the funeral in the papers or something.
0: Sick mother it's the last thing you need right now i'm sure
2: actually it's been giving me freddy nightmares
0: wait a second now, let me get this straight you're having nightmares about freddy as in me
2: no it isn't you he's scarier he's darker more evil yeah how did you know call it a guess Pretty damn good guess. Anyway, what I was calling about was, have you seen any of the script by any chance? Well, Wes won't show it until he's finished. At least that's what he told me. Well, when is it gonna be done? Now the way he's writing, who knows? So weird. I asked him how far he was at the funeral, what did he say? Oh yeah, as far as Dylan, trying to reach God, whatever that means, weird, huh?
1: A vampire in Brooklyn, starring Eddie Murphy and directed by Wes Craven, one of the oddest pairings of the '90s, at least. He comes over from like the like 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 Jamaica or these kind of islands areas, and it brings in this kind of like voodoo world and how and and how it kind of infiltrates the vampires, and so Eddie Murphy plays a straight horror villain in this movie as a vampire who goes to brooklyn to find like a a a a, a woman who is half vampire half woman and or half human and she does not know she's half vampire and he's looking for her because he she's supposed to be his like mate for eternity or whatever and it's played by angela bassett why i want to bring this up real quick is because it is a horror comedy And many of the reviews were like, what is this movie? Is it a horror? Is it a comedy? I don't know. I don't get what they're doing. Like, people didn't understand the idea of a horror comedy because Mm -hmm. Wes Craven, who is a horror director, is directing a comedy, so they were confused. But then Eddie Murphy, who at this point is one of the biggest comedy stars in movies of the time, he's playing a character that's a straight villain. And people don't know how to take it and so i always assumed this was like murphy's worst film and when watching it i think it's very underrated granted i'm a murphy stan so <laughs> maybe i'm just biased with this but i've heard a few people it's it has like a weird kind of there is a niche for our cult following online talking about how they love the mythology of it they love that murphy plays this kind of straight character but he also goes off and does like becomes two other characters in the movie as like a as like going under disguise. So there is comedy in the movie, but people were so and and West saw it as a great way like oh I can actually direct a comedy, but Murphy wanted to do a horror, West wanted to do a comedy. They kind of combined them, and I think because of that, critics and audiences didn't know how to take it. Mm -hmm. So watching it now, being detached from that kind of um. Uh, point of view of, of those two guys I think it actually holds up fairly well and Murphy weirdly was a big fan of Wes Craven and that's why he wanted to direct the movie big fan of Hills Have Eyes and apparently a big fan of Serpent and the Rainbow mm-hmm. and Craven said that Murphy would recite like chunks of dialogue from both those movies to him
2: I passed terrified about half an hour ago
1: Rita all your life you wondered why you
2: felt things that no one else felt why you never caught a cold, never broke a bone. This is just a dream, right? Really soon I'm gonna wake up and... And I will be there. Rita, I'm not going to be alone again. I'd perish without you. I can go back, go back to my life. You can't stop me. You can't. Then go. Go back to your little shoebox apartment, filled with his empty dreams. huh? And go back to your church, and don't forget the collection plate. Your good preacher's whiskey supply is running low. And go back to your job, where they laugh at you behind your back and they call you crazy. Or... you face the truth, Rita. But you have no place left to go but to me.
1: What do you know about truth?
2: You lied to me from the beginning.
1: So, but Vampire in Brooklyn is a failure. But that leads into Wes Craven's next movie in 1996, Scream. Weirdly, by the way, all of his movies that kind of redefine horror every 12 years. 72, Last last House on the Left, Nightmare 84, Scream 96
0: probably cuz he's keeping the demons away, man. That's how. <laughs> that's how long we needed we needed him that's to make like a movie a, to keep the demons below. 12
1: years. Yeah. That's what's happening right now. We didn't have Wes Craven Whoa. to make. <laughs> uh so anyway, uh Thomas, what is Scream 1 about? Or what I mean Half Scream, I don't know. Scream. <laughs> what, is, what is Scream about?
0: So, Scream 1 is just about a small town where there's someone killing off teenagers uh very famously opens with the uh sequence with drew barrymore where she answers the phone and the voice says you know what's your favorite scary movie um and then she's murdered which was which was huge even though you know every it's one of those things people talk about that a lot like what a what a shock that was to be introduced to drew barrymore like everybody knows her she's drew barrymore she's famous boom she's get she's dead five minutes in uh yeah I mean, of course, is psycho is the same thing over again, but yeah. uh, but in a new way, um, yeah. And then it turns out it, it follows for the rest of the movie. We follow Sydney Prescott, who is a uh, our you know strong heroine. She lived through her her mother's murder, uh, got her mother's murderer put in in prison. Like very strongly testified against her. Stands up to all these tabloid journalists who follow her around because of her mother's murder, um, and she and her boyfriend uh billy loomis and their kind of group of friends uh go through these murder attempts the murderer tries to get her she thinks it might be billy because he has a cell phone and the murderer has a cell phone no one else has a cell phone (laughs) what were you doing with that cellular phone billy um so she gets him locked away but then the the killer still calls her when he's locked up so she decides it's not him spoiler if you haven't seen scream yet (laughs) It was Billy and also his friend Stu. Uh, Billy played by Skeet Ulrich. Stu played by Matthew Lillard in one of the most incredible performances, I think, of, of all time.
1: One, one of the most unhinged performances. It's
0: insane. Yeah, baby. I don't know if he's good or bad in this movie. <laughs> i love I there's can't always gonna
1: be a sequel there's always be gonna be a sequel i love it's that. gonna be a scream baby one of my favorites is like
0: oh billy man i'm bleeding out i think you stabbed me too deep man i'm dying I, i'm dying of, here, honestly man. the funniest and you know we're talking horror comedies the funniest line in this movie it gets me every single time i crack up this when he's like almost dead and he's on the phone with with Cindy and he's like did you really call the cops and she's like yes I did and he's like my parents are gonna kill me
1: so I want to talk about that real quick on, on that because I've had this conversation with people when I said we're doing a Wes Craven episode for horror comedy they go but he didn't really do any comedies and I was like he did scream they go well that's not really a comedy I was like no no, no it is I what's interesting about it with scream is that because it redefined the horror genre so well, people lump it in as just another slasher film, hmm. but because I've heard this from multiple people, but in reality it is a horror comedy is that people's perspective of it have changed because like, Oh yeah, it's a guy in a ghost face mask running around, killing people slasher end of story. But what they're saying with their, they're, they're taking the tropes of the genre and turning it on its head and you have all these different characters who are like basically again these smart characters who are commenting on what's happened yeah i mean we didn't even
0: bring up jamie kennedy as randy is is presented as he's he's the the movie nut and he knows exactly how the movie's gonna go he's the one who's like it's billy it's obviously billy look at look at prom (laughs) night like it's billy and no one listens to him they're like this isn't a movie man this is real life and then he's people the watch in...
1: prom night it'd be faster
0: yeah, he's great honestly uh, it's it feels weird saying this but fantastic performance from jamie
1: jamie kennedy so I, he, yeah. I love randy in these movies and, and so do i i don't know what happened well, i to was him. i was gonna lead with this and i don't and i don't want to sound this as a diss to anyone involved in this movie is this everyone's peak i don't know man i, I re-watched
0: scooby-doo recently and matthew lillard oh my god was born to be shaggy <laughs> I don't care what you have to say about that movie. Matthew Lillard is so good as Shaggy. I, unironically. Un, no one else. I, I, I tried rewatching the animated one. I tried watching the animated one recently. Will Forte did the voice of Shaggy. No, it's not. It's, there's, there's two people for me. There's Casey Kasem and there's Matthew Lillard. And those are my Shaggies. period. Well, besides Matthew Lillard,
1: is everyone else's peak? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Jamie yeah. Kennedy's peak jamie kennedy's
0: best movie he's great in this role like i've never seen jamie kennedy in anything else that i really liked him and but i love randy randy's a great character he's really charismatic especially in the second one you're like really rooting for him
1: yeah eve
0: campbell is great as sydney obviously uh she's continued to carry the the films courtney cox obviously great on television but this is
1: yeah i think i think it's her it's her it's her peak in movie career yeah scream is scream
0: is it David Arquette not a fantastic actor outside of these movies but love him love him as Dewey like I love everybody in these movies and I think that's yeah that's also part of Wes's stamp is is all of these characters are so charismatic you you love and that's the reason why I'll sit and watch five of these is I love yeah. coming back to these characters and no other horror franchise not even halloween with jamie lee curtis i don't think is built on just love of the characters and truly rooting for yeah. these characters and and um giving them a life within the horror you know you've got the extended romance between courtney cox's Gale and and david arquette's um uh, dewey mm-hmm. you've got sydney's kind of personal growth throughout all these movies um yeah yeah all these characters are really well fleshed out and really charismatic and and, and endeared to us very well
1: all of even the ones we did like rose mcgowan also in the first one mm-hmm. um lillard um it's one it's one of those horror franchises to me also and we'll jump into two three and probably four real quick too but like it it all feels very unified if that makes sense yeah like like you have things like, oh, Freddy's. It's like we have to build the mythology of it. But for something about this, just feel everything feels natural. Even like three, I don't really like that much in my rewatch, but I feel like the steps they take in the world make sense. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me that Sydney, who is a survivor, that's the whole thing key, key about Sydney is Sydney is a survivor no matter what. And Sydney is like, now up in the mountain somewhere hiding out having her own life and works for like a like domestic or like a, a a trauma hotline basically and talks to people and talks them through their issues because she's gone through it totally makes sense for that character arc scream 4 totally makes sense for sydney's pre- character arc but yeah and i think that's a little bit due with not just west but also with kevin williamson's like the mind of him for the series
2: stop right there I'm not here to fight. I just need to talk. Kenny, camera now. Off yep. the record, no camera. Forget it. Please. You owe me. I owe you shit. You owe my mother. Your mother's murder was last year's hottest court case. Somebody was going to write a book about it. Right, and it had to be you with all your lies and bullshit theories. What is your problem? You got what you wanted. Cotton Weary's in jail. They're going to gas him. The book is not going to change that. Do you still think he's innocent? Your testimony put him away. It doesn't really matter what I think. During the trial, you did all those stories about me. You call me a liar. I think you falsely identified him, yes. Have you talked to Cotton? Many times. And has his story changed? Not one word. He admits to having sex with your mother, but that's all. He's lying. She never would have touched him. He raped her, and then he butchered her. Her blood was all over his coat. He was drunk that night. He left his coat at your house after your mother seduced him. I saw him leave wearing it. No, you saw someone leave wearing that coat. The same someone who planted it in Cotton's car framing him. No. Cotton murdered my mother. You're not so sure anymore, are you?
1: So I want to, like I said, scream. Again, people see it as a slasher film, even though there is comedy elements to it honestly i think scream 2 amps up the comedy even more
0: yeah i think scream 2 leans harder on randy randy is a more prominent figure in in scream 2 he's he's kind of on the fringe of their friend group in the first one and in the second one he's now sydney's best friend because the two of them have survived and so we've always got his constant comment on like what is a sequel and, you know, what does a sequel mean? I love the, like, running gag of him and Timothy Oliphant going back and forth trying to, like, define, like, what's, good what's, sequels. Like, what's, yeah. what's a sequel that's better than the original? And, yeah, it, it's it's constantly harping on the idea of a sequel and what do you do in a sequel. Because in the movie itself, the new killer, the new Ghostface, is trying to
1: make a real-life sequel. I, I will tell you this, is that our entire sequel month came from the idea, of their, or came from the conversation in Scream 2. Yeah. Like, I want to do a sequel I month love that just one. because. Sarah, Sarah Michelle Gellar, fel-
0: Joshua Jackson, Timothy Oliphant, yeah. all just sitting around. I, I want to take that class. The professor's just yeah. kind of hanging out like, yeah, you guys you guys debate sequels right now in this class.
2: Movies are not responsible for our actions.
0: It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating this life. This is
2: not a hypothetical. It's not about art. I had biology with that girl. This is reality. Thank you. I agree with you. Let me tell you about reality, Mickey. I lived through this, Okay. Life is life. It doesn't imitate anything. Come on, Randy.
0: With all due respect, the killer obviously patterned himself after two serial killers who have been immortalized on film. Thank you, right. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel?
2: Stab 2? Who'd want to do that? (laughs) Sequels suck. No way! Come on, man. Oh, please,
0: please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. Oh, yeah?
2: Name one. Yeah.
0: Aliens, far better than the first.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste.
0: Thank you, Ridley Scott rules. Name another. No.
2: (laughs) Aliens is a classic, okay? Get away from her, you bitch. I believe the line is, stay away from her, you bitch. It's film class, right? Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Whatever, you
0: know what I mean. Another. T2. Mm.
2: You've got a hard-on for Cameron.
0: Big one. But wait a second, the first Terminator is historical. Yeah. Sarah
2: Connor?
1: Yes. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Wait, all right, all right, all right, okay. House Two, the second story. Uh, what? Uh, the entire horror uh, genre was
0: destroyed by sequels. All right, I got it, by the way. I got it. The Godfather, part two. Oh
2: yeah. uh, uh, no. my God, that's the Oscar winning championship. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
1: that's enough. That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion to be continued but real quick thomas what's your hot take on scream 2
0: scream 2 is better than scream 1 it's the best film in the franchise that's a hot take i i i, I don't know i love scream scream 2 is and when the scream movies are all like mysteries too which yes not they, a lot whodunits. of horror movies are yeah. are that like like you can watch the scream movies and be totally engrossed in the the who it and the comedy as well like the the horror is really it's 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 kind of we i think yeah because there's this costume there's the iconic like ghost face costume i think people think horror but uh it's yeah. A, yeah it's like a comedy mystery as well um but yeah like i said it leans more into the meta which i love but i think it does it pulls it off so well and i think spoilers again here we go <laughs> scream 2 has one of the absolute best uses of exposition i've ever seen in a movie ever
1: okay
0: is that there is a scene when because all throughout the movie sydney's also dealing with like there's everyone is re interested in the case because this movie called stab has just come out that is based on the first scream movie and that's how we're introduced to the movie is is a bunch of people go to see stab there's a scene that plays off they're sitting in the cafeteria and they're talking about how like disappointed they are in this stab movie and how cheap it is or something and they Mm -hmm. and it cuts to they all look up and the tv is playing a scene from stab and it plays like a joke because it's luke wilson and tori spelling playing sydney and billy and the whole thing plays off like a meta joke it's just like oh look at this movie version of of what happened last time but the scene that they picked is billy talking about his mom abandoning him
1: wow okay and
0: what it does is it functions as a on last week's episode you know it's like yeah remember billy's mom billy had mom issues and billy's mom we never saw her we were never introduced to her who ends up spoiler being the killer yeah like without that there's there's no like oh hey remember remember about billy's mom they use that they use that little scene to to be like Hey, don't forget Billy's mom is still out there, and and sh- they had some Cl- issues. Clue you in, yeah, yeah. It's so good, and it's completely played off as a joke. You would never even think like this is
1: exposition. Yeah, because J- Jamie Kennedy falls like, oh, why? Or he gets Luke Wilson. Why did I get this? Who who who's Jamie Kennedy get? I can't remember who it was. I don't remember. Do they show? No, he he just he says oh, it he, he after kind of that scene. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm blanking. I apologize. I don't. I'm not going to go as far as say Scream Two is better than Scream One, um, but I do think scream two has become highly underrated because again i think with with the perspective of as time has gone on where oh scream one is just a slasher film it's not a horror comedy i think people think oh scream two is a sequel it's not as good as the first one mm-hmm. when i think it's pretty damn close if not right there it was together. it was written as I, a package right that's what williamson says um but it came out a year after the first one so it was they, probably they started
0: shooting it before the first one did even come out
1: or or right after like cause basically it basically came out like a year a year to the weekend i think from the first one coming out i also want to give a shout out who's in he's in the he's in the first one as like on on tv but leif shriver cotton as cotton, cotton weary He's, I great. Think he's
0: great in this movie. You, you never know if he's like a good guy, if he's a, a yes. bad guy, if he's just a douchebag, like somewhere in between. Yeah, he's yeah. so good.
1: And I, I I think everyone in this movie is really. I think I mean, Jerry O'Connell, I would say, is good. Timothy Oliphant, a young. I mean, I mean, early Timothy Oliphant performance. It feels like compared to like what comes out later. If anything, it's it's become maybe Wes Craven's most underrated movie. Mm-hmm. uh real quick i won't i don't want to spend too much on scream three because i don't like scream three <laughs> i'm just gonna say it like great cast. i think I'd, great cast great cast i i think parker posey is the best damn part of the movie um emily mortimer's the, in there she's great she's good i think my issue with the movie and you can say if i'm wrong or not on this from the opening movie i was opening scenes like man this feels way too serious like everything just feels way too serious yeah three
0: and you i mean you told me this when I, t- I i texted you i was like yes three is not good as i remember it's not as good just kind of yeah. like i remembered it and you kevin williamson didn't write this one and i think whoever did write this one i don't have his name i think it's you and kruger does not does not super get meta as well as kevin williamson yep. does because yep. what this movie does is it's like oh it's the third movie. I mean, they have this thing where they like bring Randy back via videotape, which feels kind of cheap. And they're like, it's if this is a trilogy, what they're going to do in this one is like needlessly um, change the backstory on you. And and there's going to be all this, this stuff that you find out from the past that you never knew before. And then they do that. They don't really play with it. It's just kind of the idea. Yeah. It's just kind of the idea that they're like, Oh, these movies are supposed to be meta. So if we just say what we're doing, that's gonna be meta and that's not exactly yeah. you still have to like twist it and yeah. and so just having like scott foley be her like long lost brother <laughs>
1: spoilers <laughs> it's okay whatever
0: is is like no i didn't need that i'd not need it, it you yeah. can't be like oh haha trilogies always give you needless backstory
1: and then, and then give to us give needless, needless backstory,
0: backstory, and be like <laughs> you see the joke that we made there like that's <laughs> yeah, it, that's yeah. not how it works
1: And I'll say this, there's two other things. Also, I think Sydney comes in almost like an hour. Doesn't come into the plot until like an hour into the movie, by Mm -hmm. the way. I noticed at this time where it's just kind of cutting to her in the mountains. My big thing, in Scream, and they bring it back in Scream 4. That's why I was like, Scream 4 feels like, okay, this is a rewrite of 3. Because Scream 3, for the first time ever, I feel like, or the first big time, they create a Hollywood character that is fake and that's the character of john milton who is uh, a producer is what it is who's producer of the stab movies Mm -hmm. and because of that a lot of the conversations about movies are about fake movies Mm -hmm. and that's when we're not in on the joke yeah is that in this universe social currency in this almost like in this post tarantino world is that all these characters know films and can talk about films And they're talking about films that you have seen or can get access to, to see, to be more in on the joke. With three, we are talking about movies a lot of times that do not exist. And about people who don't exist. Yeah. And that's why it just does not land as much. And it just, it all feels forced. Uh, And Courtney Cox's hair is the worst in this movie. I just
0: want to look. The (laughs) absolute worst. Yeah, That has been a topic Um, of conversation in my office uh, all this week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because uh they're As filming screen wish- five right now and we just wanted to make sure that that her her, her hair, hair is looks better all right. yeah.
1: and it does yeah i've seen yeah. set photos uh real quick i'm gonna well i'm gonna skip some stuff real here because music of the heart was the movie he did right after this um where it's his only non-horror movie and Craven it's the only movie craven ever received oscar or it's the only craven movie that received oscar nominations because meryl streep received one and then it received one for best our best original song. Uh his final years, he did a movie called Curse with Christina Ricci. He did which is his only werewolf movie, I believe. Uh he does a short film in Paris, I Love You, which is very different for him in terms of what it's talking about. He does a movie called My Soul to Take, which is a horror film about a serial killer that I think is based on an early short or early novel he wrote that went unpublished when he was a student. Uh in grad school and then he real quick i'll let you talk about it he did red eye which is a more of a straight thriller but kind of a sneaky good movie
0: yeah i remember when, when red eye came out everybody was kind of like oh wes craven's back um, yeah also pg-13 which was was huge at the time I because I, I was i was old enough to like go see it by myself and all my friends were like there weren't a lot of like pg-13 like horror thrillers and so we all yeah. went to go see it because we could um yeah which you know is something that's brought up a lot about about the PG thirteen kind of rating is if you if you makes you know people yeah, are always like kids, why why would you make a PG thirteen horror movie but they make money um, I enjoyed
1: it uh and very short it's a quick in and yeah. out movie
0: kind of the dawn of McAdams was was still you know we we, we, we on we the had, cusp yeah, yeah we had, we had Mean Girls we had The Notebook and we were just like. Who is this Rachel McAdams? We gotta figure out who she is, and then she dropped this, yeah. and you're we like, "Wow, she's versatile."
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's like 05, I think. I think it's like 2005. Mm, solid, solid airplane horror.
0: I, I, yeah. My, I, I tweeted recently, 2005 to 2006 was the pinnacle of airplane horror movies. We had Red Eye, <laughs> we had Flight Plan, which I think is severely underrated, with Jodie Foster and Sean uh-huh. Bean, and we had Snakes on a Plane. Like, we're we're never gonna hit. We're never gonna hit that again. The the we still talk about versus...
1: some of those. That's the yeah. thing. I found out, again, I, I mean, I, 2005, I was like, I guess, 14. Like, I found out what a red eye is. That's what that's what that movie taught me, what a red eye is. <laughs> uh, so, his last film, we'll talk about this real quick, Scream 4. What are your thoughts, real quick, on Scream 4? I love Scream Cause 4. Because you never, you, had you ever seen it before this? I, not, or? I did
0: not see it when it came out. I was in college, and we did not have access to a movie theater. Like, I remember talking about it. I had a really good friend who was obsessed with the Scream movies, and he, like. Yeah. Because where I went to college, nobody had cars. And there also is not a movie theater in the city of Charleston. Wow, so I didn't know that. it was tough to get to movies sometimes. Cause it was like yeah. 10, 15 minutes to the nearest movie theater in car. And like, nobody had cars. Nobody had Ubers yeah, then yeah. either you were not going to call a yellow yeah, cab yeah. to go to the movies. Um, but I, I had a really good friend who was obsessed with this series. And I remember him going and being like, it's great. It's better than three. And um, I just never gotten around to it. But yeah, I watched it this week and it, it, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's um, yeah. It, I don't, like the way it was shot uh it's really overexposed in a weird way yeah yeah,
1: that's a yeah yeah, yeah.
0: um it's yeah it's kind of strange it's really glossy um it's very
1: early 2010s early 2010s yeah
0: yeah um but it's a lot of fun it introduces a lot of new characters in a cool way it like keeps it it keeps it young it brings yeah. in a lot of hot young actors. I mean, it's got Emma Roberts. It's got Hayden Panettiere. Um, it's got uh, Nico Tortorella, who I'm a huge fan of. If you've mm-hmm. if you've never seen the MTV program, How Far is Too Far? Is Tattoo Far that Nico Tortorella hosts? Got to check it out. It's one of the wildest things I've ever seen in my life.
1: Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh,
0: okay. Nico also <laughs> Nico also used to be in The Following, which was written by um, Kevin, Kevin Williamson. Williamson. That yeah. was a show yeah. I, I loved with Kevin Bacon. And, and uh, one of the... Co- the, the, the um, colkins rory rory Colkins.
1: yeah rory colkin yeah yeah when you look at like allison Bree pops up uh anthony anderson pre-black like it was like anthony anderson was popping around in comedy movies but it's pre-blackish uh adam brody yeah uh you have uh, that's not AD even Teen mentioning
0: Garden. the the opening yeah the opening is wow yeah that is yeah, so yeah, it's, much it's, fun
1: it, it's yeah yeah <laughs>
0: It's it's one of those things. It's like you know the the scream movie always has to have like a, a especially meta opening that's become yeah. its, its trademark. And and yeah, the opening to four is is crazy. That
1: scream four opening is the new nightmare of the of the series. It's yeah. so meta the the opening of scream four. But you got Amy T. Garden, you got Britt Robertson, you got uh uh Kristen Bell uh um Anna Paquin. Did I forget anyone? Oh, oh, one. Lucy Hale, Lucy yeah. Hale, and I'm blanking on the the last person that is in the opening. Uh but yeah, Scream 4. So I I initially when I first saw it in theaters and even when I re- revisited it one time, I initially did not like uh Scream 4. I thought it was the worst of the series. Uh now looking back on it, I realized how much it got right in terms mm-hmm. of its comments on horror movie culture, but really just movie culture in general of the remakes and reboots. all all that weirdly still holds up a decade later basically that's what i'm and that's what i mean about
0: three is that this movie is about three is trying to like take on trilogies and and what what four is trying to take on is is horror movie reboot reboot culture and and so it's about someone trying to create a reboot of Ghostface, but the 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 meta twist of it is that sydney is not going away like, like yeah. normally the studio would want to bring in these hot young teenagers to replace Neve Campbell and Courtney Cox and David Arquette. And the the, yeah. the twist is they're not going anywhere. And and so yeah. that's, you know, that's what t- in, in three, everything falls into place to make it a trilogy. But in four, you've got these original you know, characters okay. going, we're not going to let this be a remake. This is Sydney has that line. That's like, you know, the thing about reboots is you don't don't fuck with the original.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 I never thought about it in that way. I always I always hated like, oh, like bring out all these new characters, then we kill them all. But you're right. It does subvert that like, oh, you expect we're gonna carry on the franchise for a few more movies. Uh, but no we're not. It's just gonna be this if if yeah. we do, it's gonna be the same people again. Yeah, it's still
0: it's still Sydney, Gale, and Dewey's story, like period.
1: Yeah, that's that's a fair point. I, that makes me rank that makes me give it a little bit higher rating, maybe, just because of okay. I know the the original ending I will say this was not the original planned ending mm. that I do know um no Scream but I do think Scream 4 is the underrated movie and I think Scream 2 is one of Craven's underrated films overall but I think in terms of the series Scream 4 might be the one that deserves to be looked at a little bit more
2: Robert's Residence you're a survivor aren't you Sydney you're one and only skill you survive well, I have one question for you What good's it to be a survivor in this little drama if everyone close to you is dead? Who are you? Turn on the TV to Channel 6. Who the fuck are you? Turn it on. Watch the
0: teaser. But it nearly turned deadly tonight, with the latest victims of these attacks being the wife of the Woodsboro Sheriff, Gail Riley, a.k.a. Gail Weathers, who's in serious condition tonight after being stabbed. Her assailant then disappeared in a sea of (laughs) identical. Glad you came home, Sydney. Has it been worth it yet?
2: Why are you doing this? Uh, friends count, but it's the family ties that cut deep. Am I right? What do you mean? The ones you care about most. And what's closer than family?
1: The bond of blood. Don't. You can't save
2: them. All you can do is watch.
1: But it's, and it's fitting that that would be Wes Craven's last movie uh he would he'd pass away a few years later, four years later in 2015 uh from a brain tumor at the age of 76 but real quick his unrealized projects never got made his first one that he wanted to make after last house in the left type or after last house and the left or, no after hills High advised an adaptation of the novel first blood which became rambo mm-hmm. it didn't happen and then he left and stallone came in uh, he was going to do a Flowers in the Attic adaptation. Ooh. Yeah.
0: I feel like some of that energy went into uh, people and people, the, people stairs. the stairs. Yeah, it Exa-
1: did. Yeah. Uh, he was going to do a 1980s update or just an, or a movie in the 1980s uh, for Roger Corman of Frankenstein hmm. is what he was going to do. He was initially attached to and was in pre-production before he got pulled for Beetlejuice. Oh, wow. He was gonna he was gonna do Beetlejuice and he got pulled. He says in the book he says it was Jeffrey Katzenberg was the re- he believes was the reason. I don't know how true that is. He's that Katzenberg even though it, it, it doesn't make sense because Katzenberg was at a different studio. He was at Disney and Beetlejuice through Warner Brothers, but apparently he said that Katzenberg said to someone that he didn't believe Wes Craven could direct comedy. And so that's why I wasn't involved in Beetlejuice. <laughs> Joke's on you. Yeah. So he went to Beetlejuice, uh, got pulled, and then had a meeting to direct Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Uh, and Christopher Reeve said, after meeting with Wes Craven, Christopher Reeve said he will not direct Superman 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he was going to do a remake of The Haunting, uh, The Robert Wise Haunting, that later became directed by Jan de Bont. Yeah. Uh, with Owen I wish, Wilson. I wish,
0: he, Owen? I wish he'd done that instead of yeah. Owen
1: Wilson, Liam Neeson, uh Karen Zay Zeta- Zeta- Jones. Jones. Okay, yep. yeah. Uh then he was gonna do an adaptation of the turn of the screw. Hmm. So Mike Flanagan's just been doing them for him uh on the Netflix series, The Haunting. Um, and then last one, he was gonna do a reimagining of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde.
0: Matthew Lillard, please. Please get Matthew Lillard. <laughs> L-
1: maddie is dark chuckle it's gonna be a scream <laughs> a scream baby yeah scream initially titled scary movie and I, you said this earlier in this, in this in the month you said you can't make a parody of a parody correct yes that's yeah. why scary movie does not work yeah
0: and i think honestly i think that's why people remember scream as more of a
1: horror, a horror movie film because
0: yeah. then someone went and made scary movie making fun of it so you yeah. kind of forget that um you kind of forget that it was a comedy already I'll never, I'll never forgive Scary Movie for what they did to Dewey. He's not that bad of a cop. He's <laughs> oh a good, yeah, yeah. He's a
1: pretty good cop. It's just part of his exterior to fool people. Like that's what it is. That's yeah. all it is. He can't help it he's that his sister
0: belittles him in front of it, yeah. in front of her friends. He
1: he can recall page numbers of books. You know how hard that is? That's insane. And he like he's got so many. St- he does it in like Scream Two, I think, and he does it in Scream Four of like page two hundred and ten. You're like, damn, Dewey you can have photographic memory or something. Uh okay, so stats real quick. Highest rated films for Wes Craven on Letterbox. On our Letterboxd list, Scream, A Look at West Craven. Scream. Scream number, number 1, one 3.8. Tied for one, number 1 actually. Uh Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, 3.8 for both those.
0: Uh last one is um Scream 2. No. Ah, I I'm, I'm letting my my personal bias yeah. influence my my guesses.
1: Uh, I'll tell you this. So I'll get... There's three... There's one that's number two that's no tie at 3.5. And there's two that are tied for third with a 3.3. 3. Uh, I'll tell you this. Uh, number two, which he didn't direct, Night Run Elm Street 3 at 3.5. Uh, and then... And the bottom slots for number three, People Under the Stairs 3.3. Wow. Wes Craven's New Nightmare 3.3. 3. New Nightmare's higher rated than Scream 2? Scream 2, like a 3.1. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I'm saying, man. People, you don't understand. I'm saying. Uh lowest rated. I'll just tell you. Uh are you, you got one to guess?
0: No. Go for it.
1: Okay. Uh at the bottom, at with a 2.0, Hills Have Eyes, part two. Mm. Uh, bottom number two at 2.2. I debate this. A vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, letterbox, I don't know what you're doing here, guys. You you got Hating on Scream 2, Hating on a, re- a Vampire in Brooklyn. Uh and the number 3, My Soul to Take at uh, 2.3. Um most popular films. Uh
0: Scream. Scream number 1, yep. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. Uh You've said it before. Nightmare on Elm Street 3. No. Scream 2.
1: Scream 2. Scream hey. two number 3. Uh least popular, I'll tell you those. Uh at the bottom, his only non-horror film, Music of the Heart uh then the hills have eyes part two and then at number three deadly friend uh most appearances can you guess it's pretty easy the whole the whole
0: cast of, of yeah nev campbell,
1: campbell uh courtney cox and david arquette uh real quick there's people he used also uh, matthew lillard
0: has been in like isn't isn't matthew Ollard, didn't i read somewhere he's in like all the screen
1: movies in like different ways and like arc like ar- like archival footage, maybe?
0: No, like he, he'll that, do like a little cameo or he'll do a voice over the phone, or like like it's just one of those really? things that he always like does something.
1: I haven't heard that, but I'm gonna look into that. That could be true. Um and uh, one there's one character, I don't know if there's a universe or not, but uh the sher- one that one the sheriff and scream, who's like you have a, a cellular telephone to to Billy, he is the cop. He is John Saxon's like uh right-hand guy in Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. It's the same cop. He is the, the, one, one, the who's one who's like, like watching her out in the yard. Yeah, she's like the, moron, for help the moron. the like,
0: Yeah. Oh, hey. hey. It's
1: going to be okay. Also, like, this guy's terrible. Um yeah, he's he's the cop. And then a few other people pop up. The uh who's it's the old lady in insidious. She pops up in a few of these yeah, films. Lynn, Lynn she, something. Yeah, she's in a she is in
0: she's in new nightmare she's she's, she's a new in nightmare hers. she's in the first nightmare on elm street she's a teacher
1: yeah yeah i feel like she's in maybe like scream or something I don't also know shout out yeah i was i was actually i was
0: reading up that that craven was big on kind of like picking up character actors and, and using them a good bit because um yeah, he did earl brown was kind of a discovery of him earl brown is uh-huh. in new nightmare i think it was one of his first film roles and you know he's gone on to be a very well known actor, and then he plays the camera guy in the first Scream.
1: Yeah, but then he you does. know he's
0: been in Deadwood, he's on Preacher. Um, yeah, he's a very successful actor now. But yeah, I was I was reading an interview with him where he credited, um, Craven yeah. for kind of giving him a start and, and continuing to give him work.
1: I know the guy who played the lead villain in Last House on the Left, Krug. His name is David Hess. He's also in Swamp Thing as one of the villains like so he definitely reused a lot of these character actors over and over again also by the way swamp thing shot in charleston south carolina which was hey. out there. uh final questions is west craven and not tour yeah I, I absolutely
0: he's he's got a especially like we've talked about these themes of like dreams um yeah. you know the younger innocent generation paying for the the transgressions of the older generation um yeah he's someone who absolutely brings his touch to everything that he does and i think the scream franchise is the best example of that that he could work with kevin williamson in a way that still makes his voice so prominent within the story
1: yeah i i was debating on this because i didn't know if he would if he was or wasn't but I, I agree with you because of scream, because you have the idea, like sends the parents pop up in there and some, and even just the meta humor, which he had been playing with previously in other films. I I, I don't think he's a, auteur, like because people think auto you have to be like a visually stylist or a visual stylist. I don't know if Craven's visual style is as eye popping or as um, memorable as other directors, even of, of like a John Carpenter. But I think in terms of themes, I, I you would have to say yes, he is an actor. Again, that goes to the next question. Whatever, what are his running themes? Like you said, dreams sends the parents meta humor, um, and just even just kind of like black comedy that pops throughout. Uh, and then, how does Craven fit into the genre of horror comedy?
0: Uh, I think he's the the, the godfather of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's he, I think he's the person, and and we've we've kind of alluded to this throughout this month because we've been dealing with. You know some films that are horror, some films that are comedy he I think he is the one who was really able to marry them together. A lot of times they were two genres that circled each other, and yes. you had something like like young Frankenstein that we've come back to. You had a lot of these films in the seventies and eighties that kind of spoofed or parodied the the horror mm-hmm. genre. but he was someone who was able to say like, "I can make a horror movie, but i can also I don't have to be completely serious." self-serious yeah, yeah. within this horror movie and that's yeah. going all the way back to to freddie you know cracking jokes the whole time um yeah. you know that that was such a i think and, and we said that's why freddie was such a breath of fresh air as opposed to all these like
1: big silent scary Talking character yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think i think the big key is that craven might be the best to of where he has the perfect balance of comedy and horror so much so that you don't know where to place him, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's even with Vampire in Brooklyn, where it's like, is it a horror? Is it a comedy? Because they're like, oh, it's not that. It's not scary enough to be a horror, but not funny enough to be a comedy. Um, and Scream fits into that, where it's like, oh, it's a horror, but there are it's like comedy runs throughout. Like in the movie, real quick, is that like in the movie when you watch Scream, is that when the killer gets hurt, he's a human, like they're a yeah. human being. <laughs> you can because it's like you hear them grunt and like they're in pain when a, a, a uh, uh other horror film wouldn't do that so he mm-hmm. definitely and that brings out a little bit of kind com- like the whole opening of drew barrymore there is some silliness in it early on in the conversation i love and the it,
0: the the scene with rose mcgowan when she like hits him in the head with a bottle and then like slams oh, yeah. the freezer in his face and he has yeah this, he has like, this Ugh. really like big prat fall when he gets hit in the head with the freezer yeah. and like flies back
1: yeah so like i i just think craven is it, it has the perfect balance of it and he shows it in all of his work anyway I think that's it on West
0: Craven if you don't think that scream is a comedy go watch the scene right now where Matthew Lloyd <laughs> is bleeding out and he's on the phone with Sydney it, I'm gonna watch it after we finish recording because it yeah. cracks me up every single time yeah
1: scream like I said scream is one of my favorite films to watch during this time it's one of my favorite horror films of all time and I think it because of that comedy element that is there go check it out tell us what you're watching that's all we have for our West Craven episode and that concludes our month of horror comedies and next month for November we're going to be covering film noir. So, Noir Vember, here we go. Noir Vember, here, here it comes. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Sin Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, make sure you give us a rating and review on wherever you are downloading the show. If you're on Apple Podcasts, just go to the bottom of the show's page and leave us a review. And a five star rating would be great. Make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to drop us a line, you can contact us at SinNationPodcast at gmail.com. Thomas, as always, thanks for joining me. Yeah, man. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Happy Halloween. Bye.